Welcome to another episode of the Misadventures of an Inspired Woman podcast. Today, our guest is Dr. Taisha Caldwell-Harvey, or Dr. Ty. She is a wife, daughter, sister, aunt, mentor, teacher, social justice advocate, lover of life, and licensed psychologist who finds purpose in using herself as a tool to heal and inspire others. Originally from the California Bay Area, she earned a bachelor's degree from Spelman College and then a master's and doctorate degree in psychology from Southern Illinois University, Carbondale, all by the age of 27. She completed both a pre- and postdoctoral fellowship at the University of California, Irvine, and then moved on to work at the University of California President's Office, where most notably, she managed the nearly $8 million mental health grant that spanned across all 10 UC campuses, leading to new innovations, policy changes, funding augmentations, and the identification of an entire series of best practices in responding to the mental health needs of students. Then in 2017, she decided that while she loved that, her work touched the lives of over 200,000 diverse high-achieving students across California. She also wanted to use her expertise to strengthen the Black community specifically. With that in mind, she founded the Black Girl Doctor, a virtual therapy practice that specializes in providing counseling to high-achieving professional Black women. The Black Girl Doctor is a quickly growing, is quickly growing into the go-to place for busy women in leadership to get support dealing with all the things that get in the way of their pursuit of love, money, and happiness. BGD is rooted in the belief that despite living in a world that doesn't always affirm their existence, Black women's desires to be excellent should not rob them of their ability to experience joy every single day. Dr. Tai spreads this message through therapy, group wellness coaching, and organizational consultation. Welcome, Dr. Tai. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So many things to share just again. This season, we're doing our theme of dope Black women doing dope Black women things. So you grew up in California, in the Bay Area. What was I don't I don't know anything about growing up in California in the Bay Area, but what was sort of like that line from you growing up as this young girl in the Bay Area towards you becoming a psychologist? Like what do you see anything from when you were at that age or at any particular age that sort of like drew you into psychology? Yeah, uh, so I grew up in San Jose, um, which is the South Bay Area, <laughs> and I grew up, well, at the time I didn't realize I was. I grew up in a neighborhood that wasn't, not a neighborhood, I will say the schools I went to were low performing, but at the time I didn't know that, so I was just in school, it seemed very normal to me, um, and when, but what, I, what really stuck out to me. Um, it's when I was in high school and I started, I grew up in a really diverse area, uh, not a lot of white people, but tons of people from other different cultures and so diverse so that we used to actually do an, uh, a talent show, um, a cultural talent show every year. And all of the different uh, ethnic uh, clubs on campus would learn dances like specific to their culture. And we would put on a talent show every year. And it was kind of, it was actually really beautiful. <laughs> um, and our little show would travel. but. 
when I noticed is that, you know, everything kind of just seemed normal to me, whether there wasn't that many, not as many black people in my high school. But when I graduated high school, what really stuck out to me is that my mom on graduation day was talking to a couple of the other black moms at the graduation. And they were looking around and they were like, where is the rest of the black kids that graduated? And, you know, I kind of looked at my couple of friends and we're like, oh, that's interesting. There were only like five of us, I think, that graduated. And when I think back to my freshman year, there were significantly more. Mm. And so when I think back, I want to say we probably started with, there was that, there had to be at least 50 of us like that were, that were in that class. And when you think about only a handful of us graduated that year together. uh, And I started thinking back, well, what actually, what did happen to everybody? And I think back and I'm like, oh, so-and-so you know, had a baby and she dropped out. So-and-so transferred because they got in a fight and they got kicked out. So there was just all these different circumstances. And, you know, it was a handful of us and we were, you know, I think it was like, literally, I think there was five of us and we were all going to college and everybody else was just kind of, they just kind of disappeared over the years. Mm -hmm. And it stuck out to me so much. And I remember that's something I carried with me when I went to college and I got interested in like, why did that happen? Right. And there, I didn't feel there was that much different about me than everybody else, like all of the rest of us that started together. And interesting. And at the time, I didn't know, like, this is a study of psychology, right. <laughs> why things happen and you can research these things. But it's something that stuck with me. And when I got to college and uh, got interested or got introduced to signing up for like research labs and just getting involved um, in academia, it's a question that I actually found. I ran into other black psychologists that were studying retention and mm. how, like, what is it that, what factors outside of, you know, your, your academic performance contribute to someone staying in school versus dropping out. And I really got really interested in learning more about that and reading articles and just connecting with faculty who were doing that work. I think it also helped. I went to Spelman College. So I went to a black college. And so I got connected with that world. Uh, and then that actually ended up becoming something that stuck with me as I ended up going into studying psychology. What made you go to Spelman? So another very interesting point is that I don't, I feel like to a degree, I, I won't say luck, but I will say faith led me there because mm-hmm. I genuinely did not know what I was doing at 17 years old applying to Spelman College. I, I, I mentioned, you know, there weren't that many Black people in my high school. And we used to do things where all of the high schools in the district, all the Black people would get together and like do college tours or would go to, there would be events and stuff for us to be able to, to meet each other and get together. And I, I remember at some point someone said, what about a Black college? And I thought, oh, that would be great. I want to go to a Black college. <laughs> That's literally as far as it went. Mm-hmm. And then I went to the college counselor or the admissions counselor office and was like, what are the best black colleges? And so, ha- so wonderful that the one, the one college counselor that we had on campus helped me, like introduced me to a couple of them. And I was like, okay, Spelman, Howard, these are the top schools. I'll apply to them. And that's pretty much as far as <laughs> my decision making went at that time. But honestly, I will say that ending, uh, going to Spelman College was probably the best decision I could have made at that time in my life. It really shifted everything for me. Was your family like, oh, my goodness, you're going far away. We want you to stay here. Mm-hmm. Like, what was that like for them? 
Yeah. I'll also say I wanted to leave home. So I was like, I need to go far enough away where I could live not at home. <laughs> so that factored into the decision. And yeah, so my, I have an older sister. I'm the middle child. Um, she went to college locally. And so I would be, I would have been, I was the first one to go away to school. And they were definitely concerned. I had to do a lot of convincing. I actually have family in Georgia. They're um, outside, as someone's in Atlanta, my family is probably an hour away, but I didn't know any of them. So I had actually mm-hmm. never met, they were extended relatives. Um, but my parents felt a little bit more comfortable because they were like, somebody is close enough where they could drive to her if they needed to. Mm-hmm. And, and so that was a big thing. And um, also actually considering Spelman and Howard, that was a factor too, because I didn't have family there and they were very much against me going there, even though I was really interested in that school. So it was a fight. I literally, I feel like all of the forces aligned and God must've wanted me there because somehow they said yes. <laughs> yeah, totally. And so that started your career in psychology. You got into the labs, you got interested, you're doing the research. Um, mm-hmm. What was like that like maneuvering through Spellman coming from the high school experience that you had? Did it just feel like, oh my gosh, this is amazing? Or was were there times where you had to figure out how to navigate some certain things? Yeah, I was really overwhelmed. I was excited to go. And then when I got there, I was very I felt I felt a bit lost. And that was when I when I got on campus and started interacting with the other women. So for those who don't know, someone's all women's college. Um, there were women there that had been in private schools their whole life. There were, I felt, I, I realized for the first time how poor the education system that I was in really was when I was able to compare it to the range of women that were at, that were on campus. And it was really shocking for me. And I felt very overwhelmed. And I felt uh, huge. That was the first time I had this huge sense of imposter syndrome, like, I do not belong here. I'm going to have to read five books for every one book that they assign us because I don't know what these women know. Uh, I I was really overwhelmed and I worked really hard that first year. There was a bit of catch up I felt I had to do. Like, and I, I, at the time, I didn't know you could get higher than a 4.0 GPA um, because I didn't, our school didn't have these honors classes that gave you college credits. I had never heard of any of that stuff. And so when I was listening to people like, how do you already have college credits? You have a 4.3. What is that? How is that even possible? What kind of elective did you have? You took what kind of course? I was blown away. And I felt I had, I remember feeling cheated. Um, I don't know if cheated is the right word, but I felt like um, what I got was not um, sufficient Mm -hmm. and it felt very unfair. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and I, that was, it, it really shook me a bit until I was able to you know, bust my butt, <laughs> like learn and work really, really hard. And until I kind of found my footing, but it probably took me at least the first semester um, or maybe through the first year. I remember after the first year, I felt good, like I belong here. Um, but I was definitely shocked when I got there. So in those moments where you're feeling overwhelmed, you're feeling like, I don't know any of those things. Um And yet we're talking about it when you're on the other side now, but that's, you know, you worked for years with college students. I work with college students. I've seen where students just simply do not even make it through those first couple weeks. 
what was yeah. it that allows you to sort of like dig yourself out of that and get into the mode where like, okay, this, I don't feel prepared. I'm going to prepare myself. Like what? Cause that's a big jump to make for a lot of students. Like mm-hmm. what got you across that divide? Yeah. I wonder if it's the same thing that kind of pushed me to continue my education, even through a doctorate degree, um, was just that I didn't have a strong sense of what else I was going to do, right? So there's not an alternative, like, well, I'll just go home, which technically I could have gone home, but that was not desirable at all <laughs> to me at the time. I also, you know, had um, my my mom was a huge support to me. So I was able to call her and tell her, like, I don't know what I'm doing. I am scared. I don't know if I can keep up. And she has always been very motivating and encouraging and just kind of giving me the affirmation, like, you can do this. You can do it. Um, I will also say that this being at a black college, the Spelman community was very supportive. And so the um, one of the things I think class size matters, like treating students like people and understanding their individual needs and paying attention matters. And so I felt like they wanted me to succeed, right? The community, you know, if you don't show up to a class, your professor is likely going to call you and say, where were you today? <laughs> Which is very different than being at like a large institution where I think students a lot of the times get lost. They feel like a number. It feels like nobody cares. It doesn't matter. Um, I felt like I mattered. And I think that um, that is definitely part of it. And also that when I think about, okay, if I quit and I leave, where am I going to go? What am I going to do? I can never, I never had a good answer or another, a better plan. So I'm like, well, okay, let me just keep doing this a little bit longer and see what happens. And I think what, when I think about motivation now, I know when you get a little bit of success, it gives you the motivation to try a little bit more. And then you get a little more success and you're like, okay, I can do it. And it's that, I think it's just that first small step to get your first win that really makes a difference. Mm -hmm. So there are two places I want to go with the conversation now, and I don't know Mm -hmm. which is best. Um, (laughs) You mentioned imposter syndrome and and I Mm -hmm. have this, this sort of theory about that. And then you mentioned how getting onto the master's and the doctorate is really uh, uh, was a part of your like, well, I don't know what else I'm going to do. So I'm just going to keep going. Right. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the imposter syndrome for a little bit, because I think it's one of those words that have sort of become a buzzword, not that people don't experience it and it's not real. But mm-hmm. my thinking with it, um, I actually wrote a chapter with one of my colleagues about it. We're like, she's still, we're tenured, got promotion. She still struggles deeply with it. I'm like, I refuse to own it. I don't want it. I feel like this environment and these white people, quite frankly, are trying to put this on me and I do not take ownership of it. Mm-hmm. That's my thought on it. So when you mentioned mm-hmm. that the environment gave you something different that it it sort of triggered that thinking for me can you tell me what your thoughts are on it yeah I love that you said that the whole popularization of imposter syndrome is a thing to be discussed and I feel very similarly I I sometimes well I think it's important that psychology is 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 um, accessible to to everyone and we can talk about these things but I do think that the way that we talk about imposter syndrome right now is like way too saturated and I feel like it's like anytime you feel some kind of way or like nervous or scared about something it's like oh I got that imposter syndrome and then everyone's like how do I solve my imposter syndrome and I'm just kind of like oh it's not 
really a solving kind of thing. It's much more complex than that. Um, but I think that what is important is that when somebody feels like they don't belong to know that like, that's a thing, right? Mm-hmm. I think that is safe when you're, when you're experiencing that this kind of like this crippling fear about doing something or uncertainty, it's helpful. Like if you don't know that it's a thing, then you just, you can believe it. Right, mm-hmm. a lot easier. Mm-hmm. And then if you can identify like, oh, there is a thing called imposter syndrome, maybe that's what this is and it's not actually true. So it can, mm-hmm. if it can serve, the way I think about it is that like, if it can serve as knowledge that can help you with more data to decide like if what you're feeling is an actual reflection of what's happening, then in that way, it's great. But if it's used in this way as, oh, I got that, that's why I can't do this. Like, that's not really what this is. <laughs> It's just a description of a feeling that we get sometimes. I love that because even the way that you said it really resonated with me. You said that was the first time I experienced imposter syndrome. Like it was an experience. It wasn't an identity that you're taking on. Mm -hmm. And I think when people keep saying that they have imposter syndrome, I'm like, dude, you're making it worse. You're you're claiming owning this identity (laughs) and you're speaking these words over your life and into Mm -hmm. your your, your being. Like, stop. Um, Yeah. I love it. Okay, so then I'm going to play a fun game with you now. (laughs) Because there are so many words that are used in popular culture that have sort of like a psychological base and sometimes don't, but people just sort of decide that it does. And one of the other buzzwords that I've been seeing around lately is all this term of narcissistic abuse. Mm, Okay. Okay. (laughs) I don't know that I've heard people say narcissistic abuse, but narcissistic personality and just very, very much using that term just to describe. Oh, no, girl, they are (laughs) saying narcissistic personality and saying, oh, this person is (laughs) narcissistic. And then they're like, uh, people are walking around saying that they have experienced narcissistic abuse. Mm, Okay. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So I think it's a combination of um, this sort of uh, freely giving people narcissistic personality disorder and not understanding that people can have personality traits that not ne- that's not necessarily a disorder um, and just sort of like assigning that freely, but assigning it freely to individuals who they may have difficult relationships with on one spectrum, one end of the spectrum, so was assigning it to their abusers. So people who, who have verbally or even physically, emotionally abused them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that I tend to lean on the side of really not needing to label what somebody is doing to you other than to say like this is abusive right like this is this is unacceptable this is abusive and then when we go into labeling what kind of abuse it is and all of that it's like i don't understand i i I think that there it damage can be done and i don't see it serving any additional benefit right and i think that um that's where i feel like popular culture and psychology can can do better at separating out like identifying symptoms for people to say if these things are happening to you this is abusive you can reach out for support you shouldn't be in relationships with people who do things like this but to be able to say 
it's this kind of abuse or that kind of abuse. And like, there's no point in that. And I think it can be damaging. (laughs) And I think it's damaging to one, just because you could be wrong, but then it can excuse behavior. It can, but it can also really stigmatize people who struggle with personality disorders um, that are working on them. It doesn't mean that they're abusive because you have a personality disorder. So there's, there's a lot of harm that can be done by labeling people unnecessarily. And it doesn't serve, I don't think it serves an additional purpose. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, love it. Here's the other one. And my students love to throw this out at me a lot um, <laughs> before we get to the, to, to the psychological disorder chapter. Telling people that they're acting bipolar. Yeah. <laughs> yes, people say that all the time. It makes me cringe every single time. And it makes it hard, I think, for you know us to be able to do our job. Like if you are diagnosing somebody with bipolar disorder and to be able to explain it and talk about it and not be this horrible stigmatized thing um, because people just throw that word around there like it is. It, to describe somebody that shifts mood, I, it, even in the way I think that what, what the the qualities that somebody usually uses to attribute that word to aren't actually what the disorder um, defines. <laughs> yeah. So, you're so like, oh, this person is is up and down a lot when I talk to them. So they have they're they're bipolar. Like, what are you talking about? What are you talking? That is that is not okay. <laughs> so when my so when my students, so there are two things that I've observed with that when my students, they're like, well, this person acts bipolar. I'm like, okay. And we go through um, the, the big five of personality. I'm like, more than likely what you're describing is someone who, you know, may score high on the neuroticism um, mm-hmm. marker within right, that, right? Where like their, their, their moods and their emotions shift rapidly. Yes, that might be a personality trait, but not, you know, it doesn't mean that there's like a disorder per se. And then the other way that mm-hmm. is used a lot is that it's a lot of times we see celebrities quote unquote behaving badly and mm-hmm. that is what is is sort of assigned to that to, to them yeah have yeah. you noticed that yeah I, I do I get a lot of questions on you know people asking me to comment like what do you think this person has and I'm like that is a really bad question I don't know that person I haven't assessed that person any clinician that would diagnose someone that they've never met is that's an unethical thing to do it's irresponsible um, what the public presents first of all is not necessarily who somebody actually is or what does it reflect what's going on for them there's so many issues with that and I think that like we got to be a lot more responsible with with doing that um and yeah we got to be a lot more responsible and I think I appreciate celebrities that come out and talk about their struggles with mental illness and I think when they do that it usually actually comes out a lot different and more (laughs) humane um so yeah it's yeah we need to not do that (laughs) you need to teach these I don't know who these people are but I need you to find them (laughs) Okay, this this yeah. is gonna be the last part of this little game that just popped into my head. <laughs> I, I, this was not my plan in talking to you, and then we're gonna get back to your path towards Black Girl Doctor. Doing yeah. some form of therapy or processing in public forums on social media, <laughs> in clubhouse rooms. Yeah, <laughs> this is a good game. A good game. You are picking up on all of the things drive psychologists up the wall completely and I 
I so it's one maybe we started this conversation talking about Clubhouse mm-hmm. and some of the things that are have been sticky as I'm listening and learning how people are using Clubhouse is just you know the public processing of emotions and not just emotions but with a therapist right like I think we can all talk about our emotions which is fine if you want to talk about your emotions in public but when clinicians are engaging in conversations with the community in a public forum um, again unless the person is actively consented to it it is not ethical to do and I think it's confusing and mm-hmm. I think that um what I, what I would want people to know is that therapy is very special and it is a special way to process what it is you're feeling on a level like with somebody and it's removing as much bias and as much of the outside stuff as possible from you being able to share and process what's happening. And as soon as you make it public, you pollute that environment and actually mm-hmm. what it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And so... I don't think of those things as actual therapy. It's a performance, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that when somebody, I think it's possible for somebody to start it with pure intentions. And, but I also think when you do that, if you're doing it well, the person can unintentionally open up things and be be vulnerable in a way that could cause harm. And you don't know what's going to come out when you start doing that. And so I feel like to protect people, it isn't something we should be doing publicly. Yeah, like I always say, I respect there's 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 a sacred part of therapy, uh, and and I respect that so much that when I see anything like that, it just it turns my stomach. <laughs> um, because also, as someone pointed out, there are predators everywhere, and and you have just facilitated this person to opening up and any. When people say this is a safe space, y'all, a public, it cannot be a safe space. And it's just not possible. (laughs) (laughs) It is not a safe space. (laughs) Okay, that that, safe space. Okay, that that's the conclusion (laughs) of our I don't know, we got to come up with a name for this game. We should probably play it on Clubhouse. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I would also say I think it's the provider's responsibility. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think that it is our responsibility to not not facilitate spaces like that. Yes. Now, people can go off and do it on their own. But in terms of the work that we do, we should not be facilitating spaces like, like that. It's too much potential to cause harm. Yes. Yes. And that's like the main tenet of our ethics. Right. <laughs> do no harm. I always tell people, I'm like. I'm not licensed, but I move as though I have a license to lose <laughs> because right. it's just a really good way to guide you through some of these conversations that you may want to have or that folks may want to have. Um, okay, yeah. that's the conclusion of our game. <laughs> go ahead. Okay. Say, okay. Say, no, 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 no. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I was I was just saying. Um, yeah, I don't know. I lost it now. Um, but I think the game should come back. All the things therapists should not be doing on the internet. <laughs> I mean, there's a whole document on it. <laughs> or just read the ethics code. <laughs> it happened to person. I rarely ever get anything about practice in my inbox, but I happen to get um, some sort of ethical guidelines around using social media. Like a week ago, I was like, well, this is, this is fortunate. Let me read this. Um, so I'm like, yeah. it exists. <laughs> yeah. 
I will say that the field in terms of like putting out guidelines and things like that is always so behind. Yeah. So in terms of like going into virtual therapy, um, which my practice is completely virtual. It's as I was even building it, there weren't as many guidelines or things. And so you really have to use your own judgment um, and consult, you know, and and figure for figuring this out. So maybe one thing the profession can do is kind of speed up the getting on board with technology and modern times. Yeah. Um, But we're still all responsible. I was in a room um, and probably I know some of some people that I think you might be connected with started having this conversation about what people should or should not be doing. And I was in a room where Mm -hmm. someone was asking, and I think it was a similar group, that similar group, um, what sort of um, policies should the new administration be looking into for um, mental health? And that was one of the things that somebody brought up um, was that like it, it needs around technology and the way things are moving, it needs to be updated like six months to a year because otherwise like you will never catch up. Nope. Yeah, never. <laughs> Completely. Completely agree. <laughs> so you make it through Spellman. Um, you decide you're like what what where where is that decision point for the masters and and the PhD? Yeah, so like I said, Spelman was amazing, and kind of the first the culture there is that you are talented, you are brilliant, your what you owe to your people because you have talent is to be excellent. Right. And so they're like they drilled it in us. You're you have an obligation to be great and do something great. And it's such a it's it was it sounds small, but it's such a shift when they do a great job at creating that culture. And so everybody there wants to do something great. And um, it just kind of leveled up everything I was thinking for myself um, in terms of what I'm going to do with my future. I have to do something. I'm obligated to do something great. That's what they said. Everybody else is doing it. It's almost like you you fulfill the expectations put on your life, right? So I didn't know any other psychologists. I didn't know doctors. I didn't know lawyers. I didn't know you could own businesses, but those were the aspirations of all of my peers. And I can't instill enough how significant that is in terms of expanding your realm of what's possible. Right. And so then like, it's not okay. I, I can't just, I mean, I could you just graduate and, and I don't know, go do, I don't know, but it was, it was the mindset shifted. Like you need to do something great. So I'm like, well, what can I do? And I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I'm not the person who always wanted to be a psychologist and then chased after that. I just, um, when I started Spelman, I actually was a political science major. And I picked that literally because my sister was a political science major. So I said, sure, I'll check that box. <laughs> I love it. Um, The decisions that shift your life that you make when you're 17 years old is ridiculous. (laughs) That's a whole nother conversation. (laughs) Um, But then, so I ended up shifting, actually um, ended up being a sociology major, but the overlap between sociology and psychology, both social science research was so great that I was able to add some extra classes and still be able to apply for graduate school in psychology. And I would say I went to, I remember actually having a conversation with my roommate uh, my junior year and I still was like, I don't know what the heck I'm going to do with my life. I don't know what I'm going to do after I graduate. And we sat down and we made a list of all of the things that I like to do. 
And we were going to go with that list and try to figure out like career wise, then what would I do next? <laughs> and I remember like we went, we made the list and at the top of the list was singing. And then my roommate said, we're going to cross that off because you can't sing. <laughs> I was going to be like, you're a singer, Dr. Ty. <laughs> No, I'm not. <laughs> she was accurate. I knew that about myself, but it was still what I love, so I put it on the list. Because when you mentioned well, the um, when you mentioned the talent show earlier, I was about to ask you what was your talent. <laughs> oh no, yeah, I used to do. We used to dance. We okay, dance. yes. <laughs> no, but um, she uh, so looking at but what is actually is really interesting. Anything is possible. I think when you have the mindset that anything is possible, like what you can accomplish. It's, it's miraculous. And I think that the power of what I think I love about psychology, I'm sidetracking a little bit, but what I, what I think I love about psychology and the study of the mind is that what is so um, apparent is that what you believe is possible, like is what's possible for you. Right. And I've seen that in so many different places. And it's funny. I think back to the time that we crossed that off my list because I, I love singing. I feel like somehow I'm supposed to sing. I really can't sing for real. It's not. It's not like I'm. I'm not being funny. <laughs> it's bad. My, sis- my, sis- my sister. My sister. is like classes. that. <laughs> I think I'm going to take classes soon so that I can just blend in with the choir. That is my goal right now. <laughs> um, but I, I went to a Kirk Franklin concert, oh, maybe a year when concerts and things were still a thing a while ago. And what something he said in the middle of the concert, he was like, y'all, anything is possible. I don't even really sing. And I'm a grammy winning artist. And I thought about it. And he really just kind of talks over songs and plays the piano. And I was like, I could have kept that on my list. That could be, <laughs> that could be you. This could be me. Do you but, play the piano? <laughs> No, but I could have <laughs> learned to play the piano. It's still possible. It's still possible. It is. It is. I, I, I don't want to do that anymore. But I think it just kind of, for me, I was like, anything is possible. Like anything really is possible. Um, but when I looked at that list of the things that I wanted to do, it was things like I like helping people. I like reading. I like writing. I like Uh, I wanted to build programs. Uh, I really wanted to build programs to help people. And I wanted to be credible in being able to do that. Uh, Therapy wasn't something that was actually on my radar. Um, But I started when I, we had great guidance counselors at Spelman. And I met with the guidance counselor there and kind of just talked to her through what I wanted, like what things I liked. And she had me look through graduate programs because I decided I would go to graduate school. Because again, I was in this culture where I will do something great. So I was clearly going to graduate school <laughs> and it was just, it just seemed like what I was supposed to do. And she had me look through programs and look through all the coursework and see kind of what things, is there a program that I wanted to take all of the classes? Like where I was like, I love this. And I ended up really finding like wanting to be in psychology. Um, so, and she, and then my guidance counselor kind of whipped me into shape and was like, all right, this is what you need to know about graduate school in psychology. You can get a master's or you can do a joint master's PhD. This is the fastest track. You can get funded. Schools will pay you to go. You're not going to pay for this. Like she was very good. And, and, you know, I guess the rest is a little bit history, even though that, that, pro- you know, that process is a little bit yeah. extensive in terms of applying and stuff, but that's how it started. And then you landed in Illinois. Yeah, so I did. 
So I decided I wanted to do it as fast as possible. So I went to a program that accepted students with a bachelor's degree and you would do a joint master's PhD program. So you're expected to like earn it along the way. And I ended up accepting, um, getting admitted to and accepting a, um, a slot in Southern Illinois, Carbondale, which is rural Southern Illinois. It's two hours south of St. Louis. It is literally the middle of nowhere. And so my... Bay Area self went from Georgia and trying to figure out the South to the rural Midwest and no black people, all white people. (laughs) And it's cold. And it was really cold. It was really, I should have kept a blog then of my California self trying to survive in Southern Illinois. I had good friends. I, I have an experience one time with me trying to get ice off my windshield with a binder. <laughs> it's like, you're supposed to have an ice scraper? What is an ice scraper? I, what is your, I need de-icer for my locks? Like, I can't get into my car. This is a disaster. <laughs> but I survived. <laughs> this is why this podcast is called The Misadventures of an Inspired Woman. Because you don't get... You don't get to where you're at without having some misadventures and some hijinks. Like, it just has to be, right? Yeah, yeah. Southern Illinois was, there was a lot that happened there. there yeah, I'm not, you know, I, started- I processed my, um, my journey in therapy this summer, so I'm not even, like... <laughs> <laughs> Let's not trigger and rehash. I I tread very is black people in graduate programs. (laughs) I tread very lightly when I don't. You know what? I don't even ask people like, "How was?" I don't. I don't. I just assume, (laughs) and like I understand. You know, there's a story that um, where I went to school, we were less than one percent of the population um, of black students. And most of that 1% were student athletes, right? And then the bulk, the the other bulk were undergrads. Then the graduate students were just like, and so there's this guy that that I knew in school, he tells a story of being in town for a whole week and not seeing another Black person and seeing a Black guy at the grocery store and walking up to him and hugging him. (laughs) And he probably hugged him back. Yeah, the guy was like, oh yeah, man, I understand. I get it. So that's how I behave when I meet other Black people with graduate degrees, particularly from certain places. I'm like, I approach you a hug. I I get it. I know. I'm not even going to ask. I was saying, I'll just say that when I finished, I literally had to take time where I could not, when people would ask, like, you know, student, younger students always are curious, like, oh, like, you know, do you think I should go to graduate school? Should I get a doctorate degree? I just, so I knew that it was, it was, I was like, it's going to be worth it. (laughs) But at a certain time, immediately after, I was not in a space where I felt like I could encourage somebody else to do it. Uh, So I just would decline. (laughs) You should talk to so-and-so. But now... I feel way better. And mm-hmm. I think it's really important that more of us get into this field. Like we need us out here doing mm-hmm. this work. We are so under, um, I don't know what word I'm looking for, but there's not enough of us to do this. Yeah. Work. Underrepresented. Yeah. 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 Um, so you get into this great job, you're, you're moving and shaking, you're doing all these things, but there comes a moment where you're like, wait, so no, this ain't it. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. So when I took the position with the University of California, 
So remember I said, like when I wanted, when I was thinking about graduate programs, I thought I like to build programs. I want the credibility. I want to know how to build them that work, how to build programs that work and stuff. I do this long graduate program to get a PhD where I'm now a therapist. I'm doing all of these other things to like learn all of this stuff. And I'm a researcher and all of this stuff. And then I end up taking a job where I'm actually getting to build programs now, right? Which I did some of that in graduate school, but it was like the position I got managing a grant for college students all across California um, was my dream job at the time. I was like, how did this happen? Right. I was super excited. Um, and, and it was very intense. I, I learned so much just outside of just running programs and working for the state and all of that. And I loved, I did that job for seven years, but I would say around year five, I started missing clinical work because I was, I was working in mental health, but I wasn't doing therapy anymore. And so I was like, I think I'm going to open a private practice just in the evenings and see a couple clients. I want to do that one-on-one therapy work again. And so I did that. I got some really great advice from other clinicians just telling me that if I was only going to see a handful of clients, then I should really make sure that it was going to be the most rewarding ever. So they were like, think back to your favorite clients ever, the ones that like just, you know, makes your heart melt and like build a practice around that. And what I thought back to was all of the, like the, um, the medical students I had worked with and the law school students and business, you know, MBA students that were um, black women or just black folks in general that were struggling with all of the stuff that we struggle with um, and trying to accomplish their goals. And I can I, I just, you know, when you work with somebody, you can see, you, you, I think what I love about this work is being able to see strengths in people they don't see in themselves. Mm-hmm. So I recall being like, okay, this person's about to like do it for real. Like you about to be big girl, <laughs> which is not what I'm saying. I can see it. And so being able to work with somebody to work through the stuff that's holding them back so that they can get there and be happy. Um, that was the most rewarding. I remember that being the most rewarding work. And so I built a practice around that. So it's like, let me work with, you know, black women who are called to do great things that life is trying to prevent them in any way it can from getting there. Mm-hmm. And I see that as very justice oriented. Like I need them. We all need them to do what they're supposed to do so that we are better as a community, as a country, all of that. Um, I love it. And so I started doing that and it was it. So, and then it just kind of the practice filled organically, just, you know, oh, so, oh, you're doing this, another client, another client. And then I remember feeling like my day job was taking away from me doing what I really wanted to do. It's just like, at some point I was just like, oh, I got to go to work. And I never felt like that before because I loved what I did. And I remember one time also sitting, I think I got got like this twinge, like, "Mm, maybe I want to do this full time. Maybe I don't want to do this other thing anymore. Um, And that job was also very stressful. (laughs) But I I think, I don't know, I I think I thrive in the chaos a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, So I wouldn't say I didn't like it, but it was a lot. And I remember sitting in a meeting um, in my, when I was at the University of California, and it was a meeting that I would normally be debating people and really excited about and policy, all this stuff. And I was just sitting there dead silent. I felt like, I don't care about none of this. Mm. <laughs> Somebody said, Keisha. And I was just like, huh? <laughs> and, and I remember I was like, I think I'm done. <laughs> I didn't say it out loud, but in my mind, I was like, yeah, I don't care about this in the way that I did 
at all. And I'm like, I got to figure out what that is. And so I went on this journey to figure out like, what do I really want to be doing? Get myself, I need to get myself back in alignment. It started becoming harder and harder to motivate myself to do that work because I was, I was being called to do something else. Mm-hmm. And so I started figuring out, okay, if I'm going to do this full time, I got to figure it out then. Right. Cause now it's like, I don't know how to run a business. That's not something you learn in graduate school. And I need to, I, you know, I, my income is very important in my family. We cannot live without my income. I got to figure out how to make this work as a full-time gig then if I'm going to try to transition. So then I started that journey. Nice. Your platform is virtual. Yes. Yes. What made you, and I think, do you, are you feeling right now? Like, yes, I was ahead of the curve. Like, (laughs) come get some tips from me because (laughs) all this brick and mortar stuff (laughs) went out the window almost a year ago. Are you feeling like that? Yeah. <laughs> so, so I don't have to say it. People are coming to me and be like, you knew. You knew. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the funny, the interesting thing is that I wasn't at the time, I wasn't thinking this is a better way to do it. I was thinking for the population that I decided to build this practice around busy professional women. I worked at that time. I was working in downtown Oakland. Like there's traffic, there's all kinds of stuff. Ain't no way people are, you know, getting off of work, driving someplace in traffic, finding a place to park, to go to a therapy appointment after they get off of work or even in the middle of the day. And so part of me building it was um, because that was what was most what I felt was most appropriate for the the niche market that I was trying to serve. And also it needed to fit what like myself. So I was still working a full-time job. And so it was also not as feasible for me, but doing it virtually was. And, um, and I will say, so research had already been coming out at that time that virtual therapy was just as effective as in-person therapy for certain diagnoses. And so I was like, that research is here. Although I was nervous about doing it because I was like, oh, am I going to be able to connect? Is it going to be the same? Um, so I talked to a few other people I knew that were doing virtual therapy and got tips and pointers. And then I just started doing it slowly and I, I love it. Um, but yes, now that it is a must, <laughs> um, we've, we've been set up from this way from the beginning. Um, so yeah. I always tell people it's not that it's better than I think it's an option. And I think that we get to reach people who aren't who weren't going to come in person. Love it. Love it. So what's next for Dr. Ty and the Black Girl Doctor? Yeah, so we so I started this just like as my own private practice. We expanded. So after the first year of the practice, I expanded and added one additional clinician uh, just because demand had grown. And since then, we've added another five. So we're a team, we're number four. We're a team of six now. So we're a team of six black women psychologists doing this work. I love my team. I feel like they're probably one of my greatest blessings to be able to work with a community of clinicians that are doing this work. And since the pandemic, well, not, well, since the pandemic, and then when George Floyd was murdered and the media decided to broadcast it all over the television and traumatize our people significantly, Mm. even worse, um, that's a whole nother conversation. Um, Our 
we had a lot of companies reach out to us and ask for support and saying, hey, our Black folks in this company are struggling. Can you help? And that's pretty much what they said. Can you help us help the Black people? Love <laughs> so, it. Um, I had always intent- been at, wanted to launch more corporate wellness programming because uh, I strongly believe that it's one thing to support individual people to say, hey, like I'm stressed out, but I think, or like this is happening in my life or I'm not, I'm, I'm, I need to see a therapist. But I think that one of the huge components um, that is a contributing factor to our overall well-being is our environment. Mm-hmm. And racial trauma and racial stress is a huge component to Black folks being able to persist and pursue their goals and live a life of joy. And so we also want to impact the environment, right? Like we can't, you know, we don't solve racial trauma by saying, let me help you cope with it better right? Like we need to cope with it while it's happening, but the environment needs to shift so that there's mm-hmm. less trauma. So you're not constantly being re-traumatized. Um, but I probably wouldn't have launched those services till way later. Uh, but with everything that happened, it was super timely and companies started reaching out. So I quickly put together a corporate wellness program. So we started offering services where we'll do assessments in a company to figure out kind of the pulse, what's going on with the black folks there and recommend interventions. Like how can we do interventions on both sides. So one, impact the company culture. And then two, as you're trying to work on all of your diversity initiatives, let's provide support to the Black folks in your organization while you're working on those longer term goals. So we're doing that's kind of the two branches of our practice, therapy and then corporate wellness. Um, and we'll see. So I think, you know, I'm going to throw it out there. 2022, we're going to launch some more live events, which was a plan for 2020, 2020 but you know, we shifted the plan. <laughs> yeah, definitely. In terms of um, folks being able to use your platform, do they have to be in California to get, you know, if they wanted to use your therapy services? Yeah. So all of our providers are licensed in California. So it's one of the thing I one of the things I always try to educate the public is that your provider has to be licensed to practice in the state that you live in. Um, so all of us are licensed in California, and we actually have one provider who has a e-passport, which is a new um, authorization where you can, if you live in a certain state, then you can see providers in multiple states. So all the states that have kind of signed on to this e-passport agreement. Um, so we have one provider that actually lives in Nevada um, who has an e-passport, and so she can see uh, clients in several other states, and those are on our website. So if you look at our website, it'll show all of the states that we offer services in. Um, but there's an additional, I think there's an, it's an additional 13 states. Um, and so she's available in all of those those areas. So amazing. So dope. Um, I will say our corporate wellness services are available nationwide. Um, so you don't have to be within the practice. And we often offer just group stuff online, all of our group stuff. It's not therapy, they're workshops. Um, then they're open to everybody. Love well. it. Love it. Okay. Um, so now we're going to shift to the lightning round. Um, and this is something that I actually do with everybody. The other game, that was just for you. <laughs> So thank you for humoring me. Um, so the lightning round is a bunch of random questions that I ask you. Don't think about it. Just give me back your answer. Okay. okay. <laughs> so what is your favorite color? Oh, gosh. <laughs> These questions. <laughs> I'm so sorry. 
sorry. I'm one of those people who's like, my favorite. I mean, I like a lot of things. All right, give us a couple. Um, give us a couple. <laughs> okay, I like yellow and mauve. <laughs> okay, we'll go with those two. What's your favorite dessert? Ooh, dessert. At the moment, let's go with peach cobbler. <laughs> okay. And is it with ice cream or just on its own? Absolutely. Peach cobbler with ice cream. Vanilla okay. ice cream. Vanilla ice cream. People that put other kinds of ice cream on peach cobbler. I don't understand those people. <laughs> <laughs> I love how she did it. I love how she chose not to diagnose them. And she was like, I just don't get it. <laughs> I don't understand. There's only vanilla ice cream belongs on peach cobbler. <laughs> Got it. Celebrity crush. Ooh, Idris Elba. Okay, I think somebody. I think you're the second person to say Keep that this year. No, you. I mean, I think you know everybody could have an Idris Elba. Like <laughs> you know, <laughs> what is your guilty pleasure? Uh, guilty pleasure. I I really like some of like teen reality shows. I love Teen Mom. <laughs> Okay. We're not judging you. We don't judge. I do love Teen Mom. That is that is very true. I love that show. <laughs> awesome. And last question. Who plays Dr. Ty in the story of your life? And what genre is it? Is it is it a musical? Is it a drama? Is it a comedy? Is it a stage play? Oh man. So this is like a psychological question. <laughs> Okay, so, ooh, who plays me? I'm going to say, let me come back to that one. But genre, I'll say that my life is a, oh, good question. I want to say it's a drama, um, but And maybe a drama with suspense. So I'm just going to go with that. Okay. Yes. I feel like we don't know what's about to happen, but I think anything is possible. Okay. Uh, I want to leave a little bit of, of room for suspense. Mm-hmm. And who plays me? I don't know. I'm going to say I want Angela Bassett to play me. All right. Yes. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, tell our listeners where they can find you and follow you. Thank you. Yeah. So... If there's any interest in just reaching out personally, like directly for interested in services, anything like that, get in touch with me. You can email me at drtai at theblackgirldoctor.com. Uh, so it's Dr. D-R-T-A-I. And on social media, I am, my handle is theblackgirldoctor across all social media. So Instagram and Facebook, uh, we're active. And or on LinkedIn. So we have a LinkedIn page for the brand at The Black Girl Doctor. And the website? Oh, website, www.theblackgirldoctor.com. <laughs> Thank you. I am so, so happy that you joined me um, and shared so much with our listeners. Like I said, dope Black women doing dope Black women things. Um, thank you for sharing your misadventures with us. Thank you for sharing some laughs with us. And thank you for being a part of our community. Thank you. It was great. And I look forward to continuing to be a part of the community and hearing all of the stories from all the other dope Black women. Awesome. Hey, inspired person. Thank you for listening to another of our episodes. This month of July is considered Minority Mental Health Month. 
And so I thought it would be really great to introduce you to Dr. Tai and all of the amazing work that she's doing. And the conversation, I think, is just useful and helpful to anyone who is at any stage of life right now. It is incredibly uplifting and fun. Thank you again for listening. Thank you for being a part of the community. Be sure to follow me on social media, on Instagram at Dr. Keisha. That's D-R underscore K-E-I-S-H-A. Check out my blog on my website at www.drkeisha.nyc. And while you're there, pick up a dope Black woman t-shirt. Thank you again for listening. And as always, be intentional.